Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Genesis as we continue this long journey through the book of Genesis. So glad that you are able to join us today. I know that uh, it's been a long journey thus far, but uh, I hope you're finding this series very helpful for you as we journey together through this book, the first book of the Bible. Today, we'll be embarking on Genesis 15, and this is a continuation of a sub-series within a larger series, a sub-series that I entitled last week as Vision Driven. And so, uh, without further ado, customarily, we usually show a video clip. So let me show you this video clip first before we continue on. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. Anyway, it sounds like all I have to do to stop Ragnarok is rip that thing off your head. <laughs> but Ragnarok has already begun. You cannot stop it. So you've seen the prophecy. You cannot stop Ragnarok. Why fight it, says Surtur to Thor. Now, just to get it out of the way, I am not saying that the whole world will go up in flames. Although there are some folks who believe that it will happen, and some even want to make sure it happens by putting out commentaries, Bible studies, etc. to convince us as well. Why they believe it and are so fascinated by it is a little worrisome. Not so much about their theology of the end times, but what's really happening in here and how they manage their relationships with people who may disagree with them, like me. So why did I show you this scene though? beyond that. Back to the point. Why did I show you this scene? Well, let's do a quick review of what a God-given vision looks like. Each of us have a different God-given vision. Not all of us are given a vision like a Bram, right? Like, not all of us are given a vision to have many kids, or even have kids in general, and conquer ten nations, or even conquer one. But every God-given vision has three common essentials. First, every God-given vision has a central focus or the life center of God's global vision of redemption. God's global vision is to see the fullness of humanity and creation be in his presence once again. As Dan would say, shalom, which means that our God-given vision is part of this to be a blessing to humanity and creation so that they too realize God's global vision. This is his big covenant with the big C with humanity. The covenant that he made with Adam, well, I almost said Adam, Adam reinstated it with Noah and with Abraham. Second, every God-given vision is a covenantal one with each of us. Yes, we each have a covenant with God within the Grand Covenant. Trust and obey God, and you will succeed in seeing your God-given vision come into fruition. Blessed by God, and be a blessing to others. Now, if you settle and neglect God, neglect His God-given vision for you, and not trust and obey Him, you will not succeed. You will miss out on God's global vision, and quite frankly, you become a curse to the world. What's worse? Permanent poof? Death? Finality? Final curtain? And missing out on God's global vision? Or be part of a blessing? 
and be blessed by fulfilling your God-given vision for you. And third, every God-given vision not only encompasses the first two essentials that we mentioned, i.e. God's global vision as our core and the covenantal relationship we have in our vision, it also includes our passion, our capacities, our talents, our values, our skills, our acumens. In other words, God wastes nothing. I believe that this last essential is a very pragmatic one. Pragmatic why? Because it provides us with a pragmatic way in determining our God-given vision for each of us. It's the intersection, as I said last week, it's the intersection of all our acumens, personalities, and capacities, and our passions and our values in the context of God's global vision and his covenant with us. Moosh together and you get, each of us get our God-given vision. Now for those keeners out there, you might notice that your God-given vision has a lot to do with embodying a role. Remember mine? Mine was God's executioner. The more I trust and obey God and pursue my God-given vision, I'm actually blessing others along the way by helping them execute their vision. That's why it's so important for God's global vision, his grand covenant with the entire cosmos to be the source and central focus of each of our God-given visions. As I said last week, this actually is the key element that differentiates a God-given vision for each of us versus our selfish ambition. Each of our God-given visions bless those around us and usher people into God's presence, into God's global vision. So why on earth did I show you the scene with Surtur and Thor just earlier? Well, here's my point today that I want to expand on. We can't stop God's global vision, i.e. his covenant with humanity and creation, nor can we compromise it by not fulfilling our God-given visions. See, he doesn't need us. We can't screw things up. We can't screw his covenant up with our screw-ups or frequent mishaps of disobeying God. God's global vision to see humanity and creation in his presence will indeed come into fruition. Why? Because it has already started through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's breaking in. It's bleeding through the world, as one of my professors once said. We will explain how we got there in this discussion, but just wait a moment. The second point, our God-given vision, our God-given vision, i.e. his covenant with each of us, remains intact as well. What do I mean by that? Well, it's like a moving train. Nothing stops it. Our God-given vision for each of us is like a moving train. Nothing stops it. The decision is ours, though, as to whether we want to stay on it or not. Abraham's vision was completely intact, regardless of how many times he screwed up. And same goes for us. Why? We will answer that too in this discussion today. Our God-given vision, his covenant with us, remains intact. It's more about a matter of whether we want to remain faithful in his covenant i.e. stay on the train. Okay, let's start. 
Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house, Elizer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Hmm. After these things, quotes, this passage came right after the event when Abram defeated the three kings to free his dishonorable nephew Lot and rejected and he also rejected Sodom's king's offer of immense wealth in exchange for Abram's people if you recall. So, after these things, i.e. After pissing off three plus one kings and leaving them seething with revenge and also to top it off, humiliating the king of Sodom, if you were in Abram's Nike sandals, how would you be feeling right about now? Freaking scared! You're just a nomad living in tents in the middle of a desert and these four kings are now pissed at you for obeying God instead of falling in line with their agenda. Think about it. Then, God spoke to Abraham in a vision with one of two I am statements in this chapter. Now, if you recall, majority of the commentators somewhat agree that the writer or writers of Genesis was or were one of the Israelites during the Exodus. And so, the I am statements has significant weight for God because he used I am when he addressed the Israelites in the Exodus and renewed his covenant with them during the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So, to have the writer emphasize, I am, not once, but twice in one chapter, the author is drawing us, the reader, to attention. That God is serious in making a covenant renewal. God is serious in making a covenant renewal to keep it. Or more, not just a renewal, more like a reminder, but to Abraham is more of a renewal. Because Abraham is freaking scared, right? Like, one wrong move, one little political mishap, and he feared that the three plus one kings would annihilate him. So, God uses, in Abraham's fear and doubt, God uses an I am statement to reestablish, renew, and remind Abraham of his covenant with him and with humanity. So, when God says, I am, it means that God will always keep his promises. Throughout the Old Testament, God uses I am to assure his audience, whether it be Abraham, whether it be the prophets, whether it be kings or judges, that his global vision and the vision for each of them will always prevail. Abraham feared for his life. But not only that, he feared that God's vision for him was threatened. God tells Abraham that he will always be Abraham's shield. Nothing can threaten Abraham's God-given vision for him. The only thing that can compromise Abraham's vision is the covenantal side. 
is whether Abraham's choices as to whether he will remain faithful to God and keep pursuing the vision. I.e., is Abraham going to stay on the vision train? Difficult circumstances, environmental factors, hostile people, external threats, and even, in Abraham's case, biological clocks cannot and will not jeopardize God's global vision and his vision for each of us, including Abraham. The only thing that can jeopardize the fulfillment of our God-given vision for each of us is whether we remain faithful to God and keep to his vision for each of us and not settle and neglect it. Abraham, he didn't lose faith in God. Yeah, it does sound like he was complaining or questioning God in doubt. But really, if we read on, in verse 6, he was declared righteous because of his faith. So that doesn't really jive with what he said. What I think, and what Bruce Walkie says as well, is that Abraham didn't lose faith when he was questioning God. No, he wanted God to increase his faith. He has faith. He wanted God to assure him, to increase his faith. So it is okay for each of us to, when God gives us this God-given vision, and we see difficult circumstances in front of us, that it, these circumstances may threaten to jeopardize our God-given vision. We can ask God, seek his spirit to provide us with encouragement and increase our faith in him. And he will do it. Faith is a gift. It's not something that's earned. God gives faith to us to have faith in him. And that's what we can learn from this story of Abraham when he asked God. Abraham asked God and God affirmed him. God gave him encouragement and Abraham believed every single word of God's. And therefore, Abraham was declared by God as righteous because he was faithful. Now, here's a key note for you guys. Did the Ten Commandments come yet? No. He, Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments, nor Leviticus, right? Or Deuteronomy. No, Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments, nor did he have a rule book or instructions to follow on what it means to obey and trust God. It was Abraham's faith, believing that God's vision will materialize, that proved Abraham was righteous, in right standing with God. Staying on the train, God declared Abraham as righteous. Being faithful to God's vision, God declared Abraham as righteous. Verse 6, chapter 15, verse 6, is the central theme for all of us today. Believe in Jesus the same way as Abraham, through trust and obedience and faithfulness, God declares us to be righteous. This verse is so important that even in the New Testament, for Paul, he references this verse in all his letters. One being Galatians, when the Galatians thought it was about following rules that declared them as righteous. Here, let's take a gander and go over to Galatians and take a look. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. Not because of following rules, but because of their faith. 
God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Let's move on to the next I am. In verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now these are typical sacrifices for religious purposes. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other, meaning down the side. But he did not cut the birds in half because, well, <laughs> the birds of prey came down, uh, they were too small, I guess. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Bram drove them away. Still seeing nothing but dirt, since he was in the desert, Abraham still remains faithful in God's vision for him. Yet Abraham again desires God to increase his faith. And God again, in response, uses what? An I am statement. God tells Abraham that he is still the same God who called Abraham, meaning that God does not change, nor does he change his mind. And so, if he is the same God that called him out, his promises, his vision for Abraham remains intact as long as Abraham does not neglect God's vision for him, i.e. does not get off the vision train. Then God tells Abraham to do something really odd to assure Abraham that God's global vision and his vision for Abraham will never be jeopardized and compromised. As we read, God told Abraham to cut various animals in half. Huh? This has a lot to do with covenantal rituals back in the ancient Near East, for those who are wondering. Bruce Walkie says this about this ritual. Uh, he's quoting from a description of an ancient Near East ritual as well. And this is, and like I said, this is the type of culture that the author finds himself in. So here, quote, This head is not the head of a lamb, it is the head of Matilu, his sons, officials, and people. If Matilu sins against this treaty, so may just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, the head of Matilu be torn off, and his sons. Once the animal was killed, the one making the covenant would expect the same fate as the animal if he broke the covenant. The sacrifice is thus an enactment of the oath. Okay, folks. This covenant ritual is a common one throughout ancient Near East, and hence God used it with a brand. We also know that this covenant ritual involved two people. The animals are cut in half and one of half of the animals are lined up one row and, the, and then the other half on the other side. The two people would walk in between, thereby saying to the witnesses who are witnessing this and to each other that if one person, one of them, breaks the covenant, that person would face the same fate as these animals, i.e. torn in half. Brutal, right? Yes, that was the culture back in the ancient Near East. Think about it. You make a promise. You sign a deal. You bought a house. And you try to back it away. And you backed out. Then you get torn into pieces. Hmm. Maybe that's a good thing. That's beyond the point. Let's focus on this right now. So when a reader of that time reads that God has instructed Abraham, okay, to cut animals in half and line them up, they would immediately know that God and Abraham are, 
are making a covenant between each other. God is making a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham is making a covenant with God. A promise that he will fulfill his vision for Abraham. Right? That would be the logical sequence. Abraham needed affirmation. Abraham needed an increase in faith. And what better way in the ancient Near East than it is to put a covenant like this that would guarantee that both parties will fulfill it. Let's move on. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All right. If Genesis was indeed written by someone among the Israelites during the Exodus, why would he insert this into Abraham's story? It's because God told Moses and the Israelites that this will happen during the Exodus. Here, let's blast over to the next book called Exodus in chapter 6, verse 2. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I remembered my covenant. See, folks, God told Moses that, by the way, I told Abraham already that this will happen, that the people of Israel, the Israelites, will be afflicted servants, i.e. slaves to a nation, which turned out to be Egypt. And God promised to liberate them, which he did. He liberated the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Hence, when the writer, during the time of the Israelites wandering in the desert in Exodus, when the writer was retelling the story of Abraham, he inserted this. Why? To tell us, the readers, that God keeps his promises. That God's global vision and his vision for Abraham and his nation, i.e. the Israelites, will come into fruition regardless of external hostilities that might threaten this vision like the Egyptians. But right after this, we have something that is quite unusual. But before we embark on this, let me repeat again. This author was in the Exodus. He was part of the Israelites in the Exodus. He knew that Moses told he knew, sorry, he knew that God told Moses that, hey, I already told Abraham that this situation will happen, that the Israelites will be enslaved and I will liberate them. In fact, he did. He liberated them. And so, in his mind, it is no question to insert that story back into Abraham's story when he's retelling it, to tell us, the readers, that, hey, look, that covenant that God made with Abraham, it's still intact. That God keeps his promises. Okay, now let's go back. And the interesting thing is the author takes it back to the story of the animal halves. 
So let's go back to the animal halves in verse 17. So when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You know what? Let's just call them all parasites. All right. By custom, if you recall, let's blast back a little further, a few paragraphs forward uh, earlier. We said that this type of covenantal ritual involved two people. And so what should we have expected? We should have expected that God and Abraham would be walking through those pieces, right? No, Abraham didn't, did he? It was just God, God himself. In fact, God took on the forms of how the Israelites saw God during Exodus, fire and smoke the smoking fire and the flaming torch. The same form that the Israelites saw God during their desert wandering in Exodus. If you recall, if you're keeners out there who know Exodus, you would agree. So what does this mean then if it was just God walking through those pieces? Well, we've already seen that God's global vision and his vision for Abraham will come into fruition regardless of external threats, right? That the only threat is Abraham himself, whether he will stay on course or not. Well, God knew that Abraham is not perfect. In fact, remember his goof up in Egypt when he lied about his wife being his sister? Well, yes, he repented and came back to God and God received him back and called him faithful and righteous. But you know what? The next chapter after this, when Dan takes over and continues on our journey with chapter 16, Abraham screws up again. And so, yes, in fact, right after this chapter, he screws up again. So what happens if he did walk through those pieces with God? Well, he would have been torn in half, torn into pieces in the next chapter because of his screw-ups. So what does this tell us about God? Well, God really desires for his global vision to come into fruition. Like he did with Adam and Eve when he expelled them out of the Garden of Eden so that they wouldn't be consumed by the holiness, like they wouldn't die and go ex and to be exterminated. Like he did with Cain, instead of laying a smackdown on him, he gave him a mark and actually guarded him and protected him when he wandered around the world. Like he did with Noah and his, his drunkenness by taking too much wine, Abraham. His grace and mercy towards us means that he really wants to love and bless humanity, even though he knew that humanity will always fall short in fulfilling their side of the covenant. If you recall covenants back in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, the covenant was that as long as humanity do their part, God will always do his part. But if humanity does not do their part, they need to be exterminated. Yet God withheld that. God protected humanity. They, he took them out. He protected them so that they would not be exterminated because he desires so much to love and bless humanity, even though he, know, he knew that humanity will always fall short 
in fulfilling their side of the covenant. And so, he knew that Abraham would screw up again and again, and he did. Abraham is not perfect, but Abraham is faithful. Abraham is faithful. Faithful to get back on the train because Abraham repents and turns back to God and trusts and obey God, even though he screwed up. And God calls Abraham righteous. Not perfect, but faithful and righteous. Wow. Normally in the ancient Near East, if you screw up, break the covenant, you'll be dead. Adam should have been toast. Cain should have been toast. Noah and Ham as well. But God knew that, and so the only person who does not screw up, the only person who is perfect, who could keep this covenant intact and to fulfill their own part, is God himself. And hence, he made the covenant with himself. God desires so much to love and bless humanity, and he really wants to keep that covenant intact, that he made the covenant with himself. That if humanity does not fulfill the covenant or breaks the covenant, they will not be torn into pieces and die, but the one who represented humanity, who walked through the pieces with God, will pay the price for humanity. And for those keeners out there, who is this? God himself in human form, Jesus. God's global vision will always come into fruition with or without us, whether we fulfill our God-given vision or not, because of what he did through those torn pieces. Jesus paid the price of humanity's fallenness because Jesus was the human representation of God. But the reason he gave us our God-given vision for each of us, even though we didn't have to, even though we didn't, he didn't need us, the reason why he gave us our God-given vision is to bless us and love us that we can experience his blessings and experience his love for us, to see us be part of his global vision for the world and be in his presence. If we believe as Abraham did, by trusting and obeying him, remaining faithful in God, our God-given vision will come into fruition and we will be blessed and be a blessing to others. Sure, we will have our screw-ups just like Abraham, but like Abraham, we can always turn back to God and recalibrate our eyes back onto our God-given vision. It's, that's the amazing part, is that God's grace and mercy is abundant for each of us. Even with our screw-ups, we will not be torn into pieces or lose out because of one mistake, or many, because God made the covenant with himself in Jesus. And Jesus took the death penalty for our screw-ups. And thank God, Jesus didn't stay dead. God's covenant didn't stay dead. Jesus rose to life, bringing in a covenant renewal for all of humanity. So let's respond then. Let's respond of what God has done for us. Let's respond well on what God has given us in our God-given vision. Let's respond well in light of all our screw-ups that God continues to give us second chances for us to get back on the vision train. With his abundant grace and mercy, he forgives us and as long and he desires us to be a blessing, but he also wants to love us and bless us as well. Let us respond well and pursue our God-given vision, for God desires to love and bless us.